This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. Police Operation by H. Beam Piper. Part 1 John Strawmeyer stood an irate figure in faded overalls and sweat-whitened black shirt, apart from the others, his back to the weathered farm buildings and the line of yellowing woods and the cirrus-streaked blue October sky. He thrust out a work-gnarled hand accusingly. "'That there heifer was worth two hundred, two hundred and fifty dollars,' he clamored. "'And that there dog was just like one of the family. And now look at him!' I don't like to use profane language, but Yoon's got to do something about this. Steve Parker, the district game protector, aimed his Leica at the carcass of the dog and snapped the shutter. We're doing something about it, he said shortly. Then he stepped ten feet to the left and edged around the mangled heifer, choosing an angle for his camera shot. The two men in gray whipcords of the state police seeing that Parker was through with the dog, moved in and squatted to examine it. The one with the triple chevrons on his sleeves took it by both forefeet and flipped it over on its back. It had been a big brute, of nondescript breed, with a rough black-and-brown coat. Something had clawed it deeply about the head. Its throat was slashed transversely several times, and it had been disemboweled by a single slash that had opened its belly from breastbone to tail. They looked at it carefully, and then went to stand beside Parker while he photographed the dead heifer. Like the dog, it had been talon-raked on either side of the head, and its throat had been slashed deeply several times. In addition, flesh had been torn from one flank in great strips. "'I can't kill a bear out of season, no!' Strawmeyer continued his plaint. "'But a bear comes and kills my stock and my dog, and that there's all right. That's the kind of deal a farmer always gets in this state. I don't like to use profane language.' "'Then don't,' Parker barked at him impatiently. "'Don't use any kind of language. Just put it in your claim and shut up.' He turned to the men in whipcords and gray Stetsons. "'You boys seen everything?' he asked. "'Then let's go.' They walked briskly back to the barnyard, Strawmeyer following them, still vociferating about the wrongs of the farmer at the hands of a cynical and corrupt state government. They climbed into the state police car, the sergeant and the private in front, and Parker into the rear, laying his camera on the seat beside a Winchester carbine. "'Weren't you pretty short with that fellow back there, Steve?' the sergeant asked, as the private started the car. "'Not too short.' "'I don't like to use profane language,' Parker mimicked the bereaved heifer-owner, and then he went on to specify, "'I'm morally certain that he shot at least four illegal deer in the last year. 
When and if I ever get anything on him, he's going to be sorrier for himself than he is now. They're the characters that always beef their heads off, the sergeant agreed. You think that whatever did this was the same as the others? Yes. The dog must have jumped it while it was eating at the heifer. Some superficial scratches about the head, and deep cuts on the throat or belly. The bigger the animal, the farther front the big slashes occur. Evidently, something grabs them by the head with front claws and slashes with hind claws. That's why I think it's a bobcat. You know, the private said, I saw a lot of wounds like that during the war. My outfit landed on Mindanao, where the guerrillas had been active. And this looks like bolo work to me. The surplus stores are full of machetes and jungle knives, the sergeant considered. I think I'll call up Doc Winters at the county hospital and see if all his squirrel fodder is present and accounted for. But most of the livestock was eaten at, like the heifer, Parker objected. By definition, nuts have abnormal tastes, the sergeant replied. Or the eating might have been done later, by foxes. I hope so. That'll let me out, Parker said. Ha! Listen to the man, the private howled, stopping the car at the end of the lane. He thinks a nut with a machete and a Tarzan complex is just good, clean fun. Which way now? Well, let's see. The sergeant had unfolded a quadrangle sheet. The game protector leaned forward to look at it over his shoulder. The sergeant ran a finger from one to another of a series of variously colored crosses which had been marked on the map. "'Monday night, over here on Copperhead Mountain. That cow was killed,' he said. "'The next night, about ten o'clock, that sheep flock was hit on this side of Copperhead, right about here. "'Early Wednesday night, that mule got slashed up in the woods back of the western farm.' It was only slightly injured. Must have kicked the Watsit and got away. But the Watsit wasn't too badly hurt, because a few hours later it hit that turkey flock on the Rymer farm. And last night, it did that. He jerked a thumb over his shoulder at the Strawmeyer farm. See? Following the ridges, working toward the southeast, avoiding open ground, killing only at night. Could be a bobcat at that. Or Jinx's maniac with the machete, Parker agreed. Let's go up by Hinman's Gap and see if we can see anything. They turned after a while into a rutted dirt road, which deteriorated steadily into a grass-grown track through the woods. Finally they stopped, and the private backed off the road. The three men got out, Parker with his Winchester, the sergeant checking the drum of a Thompson, and the private pumping a buckshot shell into the chamber of a riot gun. For half an hour they followed the brush-grown trail beside the little stream. Once they passed a dark gray commercial model jeep back to one side. Then they came to the head of the gap. A man wearing a tweed coat, tan field boots, and khaki breeches was sitting on a log smoking a pipe. He had a bolt-action rifle across his knees, and a pair of binoculars hung from his neck. He seemed about thirty years old, 
and any Bobby Soxer's idol of the screen would have envied him the handsome regularity of his strangely immobile features. As Parker and the two state policemen approached, he rose, slinging his rifle, and greeted them. "'Sergeant Haines, isn't it?' he asked pleasantly. "'Are you gentlemen out hunting the critter, too?' "'Good afternoon, Mr. Lee. I thought that was your jeep I saw down the road a little.' The sergeant turned to the others. "'Mr. Richard Lee, staying at the old Kinchwater place, the other side of Rudder's Fort. This is Mr. Parker, the district game protector, and Private Zinkowski.' He glanced at the rifle. "'Are you out hunting for it, too?' "'Yes. I thought I might find something up here. What do you think it is?' "'I don't know,' the sergeant admitted. "'It could be a bobcat. Canada lynx. Jink here has a theory that it's some escapee from the paper doll factory with a machete. Me? I hope not, but I'm not ignoring the possibility.' The man with the matinee idol's face nodded. "'It could be a lynx. I understand they're not unknown in this section.' "'We paid bounties on two in this county in the last year,' Parker said. "'Odd rifle you have there. Mind if I have a look at it?' "'Not at all.' The man who had been introduced as Richard Lee unslung and handed it over. "'The chamber's loaded,' he cautioned. "'I never saw one like this,' Parker said. "'Foreign?' "'I think so. I don't know anything about it.' It belongs to a friend of mine, who loaned it to me. I think the action's German, or Czech. The rest of it's a custom job, by some West Coast gunmaker. It's chambered for some ultra-velocity wildcat load. The rifle passed from hand to hand. The three men examined it in turn, commenting admiringly. "'You find anything, Mr. Lee?' the sergeant asked, handing it back. Not a trace. The man called Lee slung the rifle and began to dump the ashes from his pipe. I was along the top of this ridge for about a mile on either side of the gap, and down the other side as far as Hinman's Run. I didn't find any tracks, or any indication of where it had made a kill. The game protector nodded, turning to Sergeant Haines. "'There's no use us going any farther,' he said. Ten to one, it followed that line of woods back of Strawmeyer's and crossed over to the other ridge. I think our best bet would be the hollow at the end of Lowry's Run. What do you think? The sergeant agreed. The man called Richard Lee began to refill his pipe methodically. I think I shall stay here for a while, but I believe you're right. Lowry's Run, or across Lowry's Gap into Coon Valley, he said. After Parker and the state policeman had gone, the man whom they had addressed as Richard Lee returned to his log and sat smoking, his rifle across his knees. From time to time he glanced at his wristwatch and raised his head to listen. At length, faint in the distance, he heard the sound of a motor starting. Instantly he was on his feet. From the end of the hollow log on which he had been sitting, he produced a canvas musette bag. Walking briskly to a patch of damp ground beside the little stream, he leaned the rifle against a tree and opened the bag. 
First he took a pair of gloves of some greenish, rubber-like substance and put them on, drawing the long gauntlets up over his coat-sleeves. Then he produced a bottle and unscrewed the cap. Being careful to avoid splashing his clothes, he went about pouring a clear liquid upon the ground in several places. Where he poured, white vapors rose, and twigs and grass crumbled into brownish dust. After he had replaced the cap and returned the bottle to the bag, he waited for a few minutes, then took a spatula from the musette and dug where he had poured the fluid, prying loose four black, irregular-shaped lumps of matter, which he carried to the running water and washed carefully before wrapping them and putting them in the bag along with the gloves. Then he slung bag and rifle and started down the trail to where he had parked the jeep. Half an hour later, after driving through the little farming village of Rudder's Fort, he pulled into the barnyard of a run-down farm and backed through the open doors of the barn. He closed the double doors behind him and barred them from within. Then he went to the rear wall of the barn, which was much closer the front than the outside dimensions of the barn would have indicated. He took from his pocket a black object like an automatic pencil. Hunting over the rough plank wall, he found a small hole and inserted the pointed end of the pseudo-pencil, pressing on the other end. For an instant, nothing happened. Then a ten-foot square section of the wall receded two feet and slid noiselessly to one side. The section which had slid inward had been built of three-inch steel, massed by a thin covering of boards. The wall around it was two-foot concrete, similarly camouflaged. He stepped quickly inside. Fumbling at the right side of the opening, he found a switch and flicked it. Instantly, the massive steel plate slid back into place with a soft, oily click. As it did, lights came on within the hidden room, disclosing a great semi-globe of some fine metallic mesh, thirty feet in diameter and fifteen in height. There was a sliding door at one side of this. The man called Richard Lee opened and entered through it, closing it behind him. Then he turned to the center of the hollow dome, where an armchair was placed in front of a small desk below a large instrument panel. The gauges and dials on the panel, and the levers and switches and buttons on the desk control board, were all lettered and numbered with characters not of the Roman alphabet or the Arabic notation. And within instant reach of the occupant of the chair, a pistol-like weapon lay on the desk. It had a conventional index finger trigger and a hand-fit grip. But instead of a tubular barrel, two slender parallel metal rods extended about four inches forward of the receiver, joined together at what would correspond to the muzzle by a streamlined knob of some light blue ceramic or plastic substance. The man with the handsome, immobile face deposited his rifle and musette on the floor beside the chair and sat down. First he picked up the pistol-like weapon and checked it. And then he examined the many instruments on the panel in front of him. Finally he flicked a switch on the control board. At once a small humming began, 
from some point overhead. It wavered and shrilled and mounted in intensity, and then fell to a steady monotone. The dome about him flickered with a queer, cold iridescence, and slowly vanished. The hidden room vanished, and he was looking into the shadowy interior of a deserted barn. The barn vanished. Blue sky appeared above, streaked with wisps of high cirrus cloud. The autumn landscape flickered unreally. Buildings appeared and vanished, and other buildings came and went in a twinkling. All around him half-seen shapes moved briefly and disappeared. Once the figure of a man appeared inside the circle of the dome. He had an angry, brutal face, and he wore a black tunic piped with silver and black breeches and polished black boots, and there was an insignia composed of a cross and thunderbolt on his cap. He held an automatic pistol in his hand. Instantly the man at the desk snatched up his own weapon and thumbed off the safety. But before he could lift and aim it, the intruder stumbled and passed outside the force field which surrounded the chair and instruments. For a while there were fires raging outside, and for a while the man at the desk was surrounded by a great hall, with a high, vaulted ceiling through which figures flitted and vanished. For a while there were vistas of deep forests, always set in the same background of mountains and always under the same blue cirrus-lace sky. There was an interval of flickering blue-white light of unbearable intensity. Then the man at the desk was surrounded by the interior of vast industrial works. The moving figures around him slowed and became more distinct. For an instant, the man in the chair grinned as he found himself looking into a big washroom, where a tall blonde girl was taking a shower bath and a pert little redhead was vigorously drying herself with a towel. The dome grew visible, coruscating with many-colored lights, and then the humming died and the dome became a cold and inert mesh of fine white metal. A green light above flashed on and off, slowly. He stabbed a button and flipped a switch, then got to his feet, picking up his rifle and musette, and fumbling under his shirt for a small mesh bag from which he took an inch-wide disk of blue plastic. Unlocking a container on the instrument panel, he removed a small roll of solidograph film, which he stowed in his bag. Then he slid open the door and emerged into his own dimension of space-time. Outside was a wide hallway with a pale green floor, paler green walls, and a ceiling of greenish off-white. A big hole had been cut to accommodate the dome, and across the hallway a desk had been set up, and at it sat a clerk in a pale blue tunic who was just taking the audio plugs of a music box out of his ears. A couple of policemen in green uniforms, with ultrasonic paralyzers dangling by thongs from their left wrists, and holstered sigma-ray needlers, like the one on the desk inside the dome, were kidding with some girls in vivid orange and scarlet and green smocks. One of these, in bright green, was a duplicate of the one he had seen rubbing herself down with a towel. 
"'Here comes your boss man,' one of the girls told the cops as he approached. They both turned and saluted casually. The man who had lately been using the name of Richard Lee responded to their greeting and went to the desk. The policemen grasped their paralyzers, drew their needlers, and hurried into the dome. Taking the disc of blue plastic from his packet, he handed it to the clerk at the desk, who dropped it into a slot in the voter in front of him. Instantly a mechanical voice responded. Verkan Vall, Blue Seal Noble, Hereditary Mavrad of Neros, Special Chief's Assistant, Paratime Police, Special Assignment, Subject to no orders below those of Tortha Karf, Chief of Paratime Police, to be given all courtesies and cooperation within the Paratime Transposition Code and the Police Powers Code. Further particulars? The clerk pressed the No button. The blue signal fell out of the release slot and was handed back to its bearer, who was drawing up his left sleeve. "'You'll want to be sure I'm your Verkenval, I suppose?' he said, extending his arm. "'Yes, quite, sir.' The clerk touched his arm with a small instrument, which swabbed it with antiseptic, drew a minute blood sample, and medicated the needle prick, all in one almost painless operation. He put the blood sample on a slide and inserted it at one side of a comparison microscope, nodding. It showed the same distinctive permanent colloid pattern as the sample he had ready for comparison. The colloid pattern given in infancy by injection to the man in front of him, to set him apart from all the myriad other Verkenvals on every other probability line of paratime. Right, sir. The clerk nodded. The two policemen came out of the dome, their needlers holstered and their vigilance relaxed. They were lighting cigarettes as they emerged. "'It's all right, sir,' one of them said. "'You didn't bring anything in with you this trip.' The other cop chuckled. "'Remember that fifth-level wild man who came in on the freight conveyor at Jandar last month?' he asked if he was hoping that some of the girls would want to know what wild man, it was a vain hope. With a blue seal mavrat around, what chance did a couple of ordinary coppers have? The girls were already converging on Verkan Vall. "'When are you going to get that monstrosity out of our restroom?' the little redhead in green coveralls was demanding. "'If it wasn't for that thing, I'd be taking a shower right now.' You were just finishing one about fifty paraseconds off when I came through, Verkenval told her. The girl looked at him in obviously feigned indignation. Why, you, you parapeeper! Verkenval chuckled and turned to the clerk. I want a strato rocket and pilot for Durgabar right away. Call Durgabar Paratime Police Field and give them my ETA. Have an air taxi meet me and have the chief notified that I'm coming in. Extraordinary report. Keep a guard over the conveyor. I think I'm going to need it again soon. He returned to the little redhead. Want to show me the way out of here, to the rocket field? he asked. Outside, on the open landing field, Verkan Vall glanced up at the sky, then looked at his watch. 
It had been twenty minutes since he had backed the jeep into the barn on that distant other timeline. The same delicate lines of white cirrus were etched across the blue above. The constancy of the weather, even across two hundred thousand para-years of perpendicular time, never failed to impress him. The long curve of the mountains was the same, and they were mottled with the same autumn colors. But where the little village of Rudder's Fort stood on that other line of probability, the white towers of an apartment city rose, the living quarters of the plant personnel. End of Police Operation Part One